The Amherst Uprising of 2015 began as an hour-long sit-in at Frost Library, organized by three Black Amherst College students of the class of 2018, in solidarity with a wave of anti-racist demonstrations at Yale, Oberlin, and other colleges. This monumental movement led many Amherst students to demand college-wide changes to address racism on campus. And I want to be very careful about my wording in this next part because this was a movement began by three Black women students, specifically centering the struggles of Black women. And though we stand in solidarity, Asians and Asian Americans have very different struggles, which is kind of the point of this episode to not homogenize the struggles of different communities. But of course, we can still learn from each other. And inspire each other, and maybe that's getting closer to the word I'm looking for. We can inspire each other. The Amherst Uprising inspired a renewed interest on campus to demand change for Asian American students as well. And so, as one of the aftermaths of the Amherst Uprising, the Asian American Studies Working Group, now known as the Asian Pacific American Action Committee (APAC), was formed. And they have worked and are continuing to work to create an Asian Pacific American Studies program here at Amherst College. Part of that work has been to get the college to hire tenure-track faculty with backgrounds in AAPI or APA studies. A request for this was approved last year, and Professor Saito, our guest today, is a new faculty member here this year, a scholar of AAPI, and part of her work at Amherst is to help continue develop this AAPI major. So of course, this is all very exciting and important. But if I'm to be completely honest, the first time I encountered APAC and heard that they wanted to create this APA studies major, I was very skeptical. I guess as an international student from Hong Kong, I'm still grasping what it means to be Asian in America and trying to figure out how America has racialized Asians and Pacific Islanders, as well as the implications of all this. An APA studies major would be so narrow. I thought that's like 200 years of history max. How is that enough for a major? Also, why are we putting Asian Americans in the same field as Pacific Islanders? Isn't that just something white Americans did to lump them together for convenience? These are the questions I brought into my conversation with Professor Saito for this first episode of Office Hours this year, and I did this bearing in mind that her class this semester is called Asian American and Pacific Islander Critiques. Which is where the title of this episode comes from: AAPI, Asian American, and Pacific Islander. So, if you're hearing all this and you have had similar questions to me, then I would highly encourage you to sit back, relax, and get ready for another episode of Office Hours with Professor Saito. Hello, Professor Saito. Thank you so much for coming onto Office Hours podcast. There's Been a lot of buzz and excitement about you around campus,、oh. <laughs> especially among the Asian American community. I think because you've been hired to help get an AAPI or APA studies program going at Amherst College. So I'm very glad to be able to get you on the podcast to talk about your research and also this program. Before we jump into our discussion, could you just briefly introduce yourself and maybe talk a little bit about how you came to this field? Yeah.、Um, first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast, Priscilla. It's really an honor to be here, and 
It's an honor to have been hired for the Asian American and Pacific Islander Studies program. I'm incredibly impressed with the work that Amherst students have done in activating and organizing to have this program created. How did I get to this field? So my background is in literary studies. Mm -hmm. And while I was in graduate school, I actually didn't start in Asian American studies. I started as a modernist. Mm -hmm. um, so a little bit far afield from literary studies. I mean, there is a little bit of crossover maybe in terms of Orientalism within certain works of modernist literature, mm -hmm. um, for example, by Ezra Pound or mm -hmm. T.S. Eliot. But I would say that the kind of things I'm working on right now and looking at the structures of militarism and literary representations of militarism, there isn't really much crossover. So the reason I got to this field and the work I do now is actually because I had read a book, This Bridge Called My Back, mm. um, edited by Sherry Moraga and Gloria Anzaldúa. And they have this incredible methodology that the writers in that anthology use, which is theorizing from the flesh. And they talk about, you know, what does it mean to theorize from the concrete you grew up on, the grass under mm -hmm. your feet? And so as I was in graduate school, I really started thinking about what that would look like for me to do that kind of feminist theorizing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I turned my lens to Okinawa, which is where my family is from, and also where there's a lot of military presence. But, you know, I'm still working in English and literary studies. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking at representations of Okinawa and I was just kind of dissatisfied with how it has been represented from maybe more of an American perspective. If you look at works like Vernon Schneider's Tea House of the August Moon, which was later adapted into a Broadway play and then a movie uh, with Marlon Brando in oh. Yellowface, mm. there's this kind of Orientalist fantasy that persists uh, even within these literary representations that are written by people who have actually been to Okinawa. So Vernon mm -hmm. Schneider was actually stationed there after the war and he helped run one of the camps where they incarcerated Okinawans because they weren't sure who were, you know, loyal to the Japanese Imperial Army and then mm -hmm. who were just regular civilians. And so they were essentially concentration camps where Okinawans were incarcerated. So Schneider's novel is actually an attempt to show the similarities and the affinities between the soldiers who are stationed there and the Okinawans. And there's a kind of camaraderie that exists. And there's also a kind mm -hmm. of satirical wit, somewhat like Catch-22, for example. But this is a kind of relationship that Christina Klein calls Cold War Orientalism. So mm -hmm. it, there's this idea of friendship and affinity, but it still maintains this idea of the East or Asia as the other. Um, and I was really kind of dissatisfied with some of the American representations. And so I really wanted to see what Okinawan authors had to say about this. And that's when I, that was my first introduction into Asian American and Trans-Pacific Studies, where they make a lot more room for that kind of research. You could call it comparative literature, but it's not necessarily trying to compare the literature of two different cultures, uh -huh. um, which is what comparative literature does. It's more an engagement with the other. Um, so in this case, what Okinawan scholars are saying, what Okinawan authors are writing, and I found that Asian American studies had the capacity to let me do the work I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when you were in your PhD program, was there an Asian American studies program or 
were you just working in that? There area? wasn't. So mm-hmm. I kind of had to figure out what I needed to research on my own. But I was really fortunate because I had a couple women of color faculty on my committee who helped me kind of figure out how I needed to frame my research. And they were both, I would say, trained in feminist of color scholarship mm-hmm. um, as well as post-colonial studies. And so I really I credit them for allowing me to do this kind of research. So Shalini Puri, she's a Caribbeanist and post-colonial scholar, and then Sean Myers, who's a Black feminist studies scholar. And they helped me kind of shape my research into what I wanted it to be, because I wanted to focus on Okinawa, but Mm -hmm. also in the way that a lot of U.S. third world feminists do. I also wanted to connect it to the feminist concerns of other writers of color. Mm -hmm. So that's where my dissertation came out of that interest. Yeah, thank you for sharing all that. And we will definitely get more into your research as this episode goes on. But just to bring us all on the same page, and I'm thinking of the listener here, we've been throwing these terms around Asian American, Pacific Islander, AAPI. If you're like me, you've probably encountered these acronyms mostly through social media hashtags, probably in the month of May, which is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, and the official website uses Asian Pacific American. But there are also a lot of other acronyms, like Asian Pacific Islander, or Asian American Pacific Islander, AAPI, or Asian American and Native Hawaiians slash Pacific Islander, AANHPI. Just from this proliferation of acronyms, we can see that there's a lot of conversation about how we want to frame this and position this for people in those communities. and. For myself, since I'm from Hong Kong, I follow a lot of Chinese American, East Asian American social media influencers, and when they post something, say, for AAPI month, they're talking about how, you know, dim sum connects them to their AAPI identity, or how Confucian ideas of filial piety connect them to their AAPI identity, and it's a awkward thing to do, I think, (laughs) because, you know, the PI part of the hashtag is kind of just there, but not really acknowledged, but has to be there. But it seems like the Chinese Americans, East Asian Americans don't really know what to make of or what to do with the PI part of this hashtag that they're using. So just to throw it back to you, Professor Saito, as a scholar in this field and one who's informed by activism and field work in this space, how did it come to be that we have this term AAPI and do you think it's still useful politically or otherwise to have this term? Yeah, um, that's a great question, and it's a complicated one because on the one hand, you have the demands for political visibility that led to the creation of the term Asian American in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. So even within Asian American as a kind of pan-ethnic identity or community, there's a lot of heterogeneity, right? Mm-hmm. There's you know Chinese Americans, uh, Japanese, Korean, Filipinx, and so the term itself was really a way to gain political leverage and to make demands for representation that also led to the creation of Asian American studies programs within Mm -hmm. ethnic studies. But Pacific Islander studies doesn't necessarily come out of that same concern. At around the same time as the term Asian American comes out, the University of the South Pacific forms in 1968, so actually the same year that Asian American as a term is first used. Mm 
And that comes out of a concern within the Pacific Islands for really recognizing the regional interconnectivity and also trying to place Pacific studies and Pacific Islanders on the map. Um, mm-hmm. And so they were kind of doing their own thing, also demanding representation and visibility. But the terms don't necessarily get used in the same way. It's not until 1980 that on the U.S. Census, Asian American and Pacific Islander are suddenly put together Mm. as um, Asian American or Pacific Islander. And so they're kind of classified through the census as being part of the same group, even though the two groups and the people in those groups may not have seen themselves as part of that group. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the heritage months that we get are actually also government initiatives to recognize and to amplify Asian American and Pacific Islander and Native Hawaiian voices, writers, artists, and their histories within the United States. But that isn't to say that they have the same struggles or that they even see themselves as sharing identities. And, you know, you're absolutely right. You pointed out earlier, a lot of times I think Asian Americans like to use, or not like to use, but maybe use terms like AAPI or APA, but aren't always talking about Pacific Islander influences. Mm-hmm. And that's a criticism that also comes out of Pacific studies. So like J. Kehalani Kawanwi in this essay called Asian American Studies and the Pacific Question Mm -hmm. really raises this point. She says a lot of times when scholars are using these terms like API, APA, they don't really mean Pacific Islanders. Mm -hmm. And so it's disingenuous. And so she calls for us to think about Asian American and Pacific Islanders in a comparative framework. And that's kind of what the course I'm teaching right now is actually structured around is that tension Mm -hmm. and recognizing and honoring the fact that these are two different fields, two different communities who may at times come together over shared interests. Mm -hmm. I was going to bring up your class because, you know, you could have done semester one is Asian American studies, semester two Pacific Islander studies and separate them. So as a scholar, as a teacher, what do you think we can gain from looking at them in a comparative framework? Yeah, what I'm hoping to do, I guess, with the class is for students to understand that these are two distinct fields and to start thinking critically about how we are using terms like AAPI or API or APA. And so the course itself is meant to kind of mimic that tension that I hope is a generative tension. So instead of doing like you were suggesting, not just in terms of semesters, but also like instead of doing a unit on Mm. Asian Americans and then a unit on Pacific Islanders, which would require subordinating one or the other, depending on which one is studied first, what I do is kind of try to oscillate back and forth between them. So there's kind of alternating weeks of Asian American literature or scholarship and then Pacific Islander. And then we go back to Asian American And, you know, we're still in like the third week, so (laughs) I'm not sure how effective that is yet. But I'm hoping that through this kind of movement back and forth between the two fields, we can also start thinking about maybe how some of their conversations are overlapping within the literature or within the scholarship. And then we'll see, you know, if there's something to be learned from that tension. As we continue to pick this apart and understand why it's important to distinguish between the two, Professor Saito thought that it would be helpful to bring in this poem called Hooked by Kathy Jetnil Kitchener. This is a poem by a Marshallese writer, so she's from the Marshall Islands. And I thought to give Professor Saito a break from talking and also (laughs) so that we can hear out loud, I would read this poem out for us. So this is Hooked 
by Kathy Jetmill Kitchener. After he felt the rain of bombs that left puddles of silver shrapnel, slivers of splinters where houses once stood and charred bodies, both Japanese and Marshallese. After he watched soldiers shoot a woman's ears off because her husband was a deserter and accused traitor. After he watched his chief, strung up by his ankles, beaten raw for stealing from a dwindling supply of coconuts. After fugitive nights, when fishing was banned, when he'd slip onto the reef flat, breathless, the moon curved, shining like the outlawed fish hook, gripped tight between his fingers. And after nights when even this became dangerous, after the children stopped asking for his stolen catch of fish, after even they had weathered away, rows of ribs smiling, grotesque grins through skin. After all of that, it must have seemed heaven sent, a gift from God, this gift from the Americans, this shining tower of food placed before him, box after box after box of canned spam, flaky biscuits, chocolate bars, dry sausages, hard candy, and bags and bags of rice, all waiting to be eaten. He remembers he cried. It was so beautiful. Every day of the life he led after, he remembers that pile of food taller than any building he had ever seen. He remembers it as he pops open a can of Vienna sausage, savors the salty grease on his warm rice, the taste of a filled belly. He remembers it as he slices Spam, sizzling hot on the pan. He remembers it as he drizzles soy sauce into a boiling pot of crispy ramen. And even after his breathing turns heavy, even after his joints protest the walk to the store, even after the devious tingle trickled into his arms, even after the doctors told him the leg would have to go, even then he never stopped licking the grease from his fingers that still felt haunted by the outlawed hook. When his children asked him why he wouldn't couldn't listen why he kept eating the food his doctors had prescribed against even after they begged he merely flexed his restless fingers he had been hungry he would never be hungry again a lot to get into with this poem, but could you just start us off by talking about what history and ongoing issues this is talking about? Yeah, so this is, um, as you mentioned, this is by Kathy Jetniel Kishner, and she actually has a blog where she talks about the poem and the historical context around it. And so Hooked is referring to how during the Japanese occupation, which really actually started at the end of the 19th century and then continues on in through World War II. Mm. The Japanese were on the islands and had this kind of hierarchical structure. So they were settlers on the Marshall Islands. 
um, and the indigenous Marshall Islanders were then kind of subordinated to the Japanese. With the start of World War II, the Japanese Imperial Army became really fearful that Marshall Islanders might go down to the beach and then become traitors, perhaps signal to the U.S. military. And so the Japanese occupiers at the time outlawed the fish hook in order to prevent Marshall Islanders from actually going down to the beach. Mm -hmm. And this is their traditional form of getting food on the island. And so the result of that is that the Marshall Islanders then go through a period of starvation and famine, and the Japanese are also going hungry at the time as well. And then the U.S. military arrives to liberate the Marshall Islands. After the U.S. military arrives, they begin importing processed foods like mm-hmm. Spam, um, you know, the Tower of Goods. That seems like a gift from God mm-hmm. um, is how she puts it. And so this is a kind of reference to how U.S. military aid is often characterized as benevolent or divine aid. Mm-hmm. And U.S. occupation and invasion is also sometimes characterized in these benevolent terms as liberation, as a kind of free of the people who were occupied by the Japanese. Mm -hmm. And so Kathy Jetniel Kishner is really kind of exploring this history and this relationship that the Marshall Islander survivor, the uh, man in the poem, has to this food, which ultimately leads to him becoming diabetic because it's really unhealthy food. It's like, you know, it's processed, it's Mm -hmm. fatty. It's completely different from the traditional food that Marshall Islanders were used to consuming. And so it leads to this lifelong addiction. So he becomes hooked in a different way Mm. to the food itself. And then it leads to his early, his amputation and early death is what we're to surmise from that poem. Mm -hmm. The reason I suggested this beyond the historical context is I think it offers a really interesting and important starting point for thinking about why terms like APA are problematic because Mm -hmm. APA suggests there's an equal standing between Pacific Islanders and Asian Americans. And this poem really shows actually, you know, this history is really fraught. There's Japanese imperialism, there's U.S. imperialism, and then there's Marshallese indigenous ways of living being disrupted by both forms of imperialism and militarism. You know, within the United States, even that history becomes complicated because they're not necessarily facing the same struggles, right? So, after U.S. invasion of the Marshall Islands in 1947, the United States actually annexes all of Micronesia. The U.S. Navy goes to Bikini Atoll and asks the islanders there to move off the atoll so that it can begin its program of nuclear weapons testing. And mm-hmm. so, The Marshall Islanders are then facing this other issue of nuclear contamination that isn't quite the same as the nuclear contamination that happened to the Japanese also during World War II uh, because the Japanese survivors, you know, there's there's at least acknowledgement of what they went through Mm -hmm. and the horrors that were subjected on them. And the Pacific Islanders don't really get the same kind of visibility or recognition for the issues that they're facing. And so this is just like one example of how that term itself kind of erases or maybe homogenizes some of that history. It makes it Mm -hmm. seem like both Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders as minority pan-ethnic groups are facing the same issues, but they're Mm -hmm. really not. So the poem Hooked and the History and Ongoing Experiences of Marshallese Islanders is a warning to not homogenize Asian Americans 
and Pacific Islanders, then why have an AAPI class? Why have an AAPI studies major? Well, to answer this question, Professor Saito introduces us to the history of Okinawa, the place where her family's from, and also where her research is focused on. Okinawa, since the end of World War II, has been occupied by the U.S. military. Between 1945 and 1972, this was an official occupation. And what I mean by that is that Okinawa was under the administrative control of the U.S. Civil Administration of the Ryukyu Islands, or USCAR. And then after 1972, the United States essentially, quote-unquote, gave Okinawa back to Japan. Um, But Okinawa was actually a sovereign kingdom before U.S. occupation and before Japanese colonization. And so in 1879, after the Tokugawa clan uh, wins over the Satsuma, the Satsuma clan invade the Ryukyus and then force the Ryukyus to be part of the Japanese empire. Mm. Um, So this is actually before Japan kind of envisions or reforms itself as a modern nation state. This is during the era of Japanese imperialism still. So you have... Okinawans as indigenous sovereign people who are first colonized by the Japanese and then because of that relationship also later kind of sacrificed to the U.S. military. Um, Mm. Because of that history, you have this convergence of uh, what in Okinawa studies they call dual empire that structures the racialized and gendered landscape of Okinawa, including the treatment of Okinawan women. And so On the one hand, Okinawan women from the U.S. side are kind of sexualized and fetishized through these Orientalist discourses Mm -hmm. of Asian women as being submissive, sexually available. Mm -hmm. On the other side of that, though, you also have the Japanese imperialists who really saw Okinawans as primitive and backwards and different from Japanese. And this is not a viewpoint that was that far in the past. I was actually talking about this with my mother because my father is Japanese and my mother is Okinawan. And she said, you know, a few years ago, you would have been called hafu. Like I would have been, you know, mixed race. And so even though today people think of Okinawans or some people think of Okinawans as Japanese, there is that colonial history and that relationship. I want to highlight this because I don't want this to get lost. As you said, when we think of modern Japan, we think of Okinawa as part of Japan and I think a lot of people might not know that Okinawa was a sovereign state before late 19th century. So in the 19th century, how separate was Okinawa? And what are the differences in culture or maybe language that were there in the 19th century or maybe persist? Yeah, that's a really astute question. Um, So it was a completely separate kingdom. They did pay tribute to China as well as Japan Um, in 1609. The Japanese Empire basically forced or pressured Okinawa as a sovereign kingdom, which at the time was called Uruchu, mm. um, and then becomes Japanized into Ryukyu. Um, and then when it becomes a prefecture of the modern nation state is when it's named or renamed again Okinawa. Oh, I see. Um, so the name itself kind of conveys these different colonial periods. But Okinawa did have its own king even into the 19th century. Mm. And in fact, if you look at, you know, it's really interesting to read some of the earlier U.S. writings, um, Commodore Matthew Perry's expedition in which he was actually going to Japan to force them to open up their trade with the United Mm -hmm. States. 
he makes a stopover in Uruchu Kingdom, and there's extensive journal writings about the activities of the U.S. military there. And so you can see this glimpse of a moment in which the Uruchu Kingdom is just on the cusp of being subordinated to the Japanese Empire. But you were asking also about the language, and so... Mm-hmm. It was actually after Commodore Perry stops in the Ruchu Kingdom that the Japanese Empire started realizing, oh, maybe there's a, re- you know, Okinawa can be a little bit more interesting or have more value to Japan itself. And so U.S. military connection is one of the main impetuses for Japan invading the Ruchu Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And then as a result of that, there's also this Japanization that happens. And so Okinawans are outlawed from speaking indigenous languages. There are many indigenous languages. Uchinanguchi is maybe the most widely recognized, but a lot of the villages also had separate indigenous languages or like the different islands had them. Mm. But the Okinawans were killed sometimes for speaking those languages. It wasn't taught in schools anymore. And so right now there is a kind of movement among especially the younger generations to revitalize the languages mm. um, and that's i'm hoping to study uchinanguchi someday <laughs> but <laughs> yes that that sounds fascinating moving on to american occupation of okinawa in the 20th century just the way you described it i was thinking of hong kong and british colonialism of hong kong and china you know giving yeah. this little piece of land to the british is it kind of similar? Like, what was the occupation like and were the Americans in government or were they kind of letting Japan take the reins? It was really complicated, I would say, especially at the end of World War II because the United States wanted to control Okinawa. The yen was replaced by... Well, there was, first, there was the B yen, which was like a different version of the yen, and mm-hmm. then American dollars were used. So my mm-hmm. mother actually grew up during a time when they were still using American dollars before reversion. And so in that sense, U.S. occupation was totalizing in a way. Because of their bureaucratic control of Okinawa, actually Okinawa becomes stateless during this period. So they don't have citizenship or a nationality with the U.S., and they they don't with Japan. Mm. And Japan maintains what they characterized as a residual sovereignty, so sovereignty only in name and the understanding that someday Okinawa would be returned to Japan. But Japan wasn't actually allowed to control what went on in Okinawa. Mm. But there were actually a lot of instances where there were contested sovereignties, so and things like memorialization of the war dead. Um, that becomes a moment in which Japan and the United States are kind of struggling over memorialization because that's a way of identifying with the nation itself. Mm. And then Okinawans are kind of caught in the middle at this point. I see. And then in 1972, when sovereignty is, is it handed back to Japan if Okinawa was stateless? Like, how would you talk about that part of the history? Yeah, so from my understanding, it was a really hectic time. Mm-hmm. So Okinawa reverts to Japanese control and becomes mm-hmm. part of Japan's nation state once more. And from my understanding, or the way the Okinawans I've spoken to have described it, it happened pretty much overnight. And so once that decision came out, all of a sudden they had to change all the signs that mm-hmm. were in English into Japanese. They had to start driving on the other side of the road. Oh. And they had to change like even small stuff like the, where the bus stop was because it was on the wrong right. side of the road. And so it was a kind of chaos mm-hmm. um, for a period. And then eventually things kind of settled down and then Japan begins this era of rapid industrialization. Mm-hmm. 
And just to clarify, was it an American decision to leave, or was it like a joint agreement that this was going to happen with Japan and America? Yeah. It was a joint agreement, but it was also the result of Okinawan protests. Mm. So because of mil- the U.S. military presence, there had been a lot of acts of violence and incidents, and so Okinawans were protesting, and some a lot of them wanted. They wanted reversion because they thought that would protect them, and they thought it would mean the end of the U.S. occupation. There were some who also thought that maybe Okinawa could be its own independent state again. And certainly after reversion and the occupation didn't end, or at least maybe in terms of legal definitions it ended, but in the reality of it was that the military bases continued and they're still there to this day. Then some activists also started thinking that maybe they shouldn't have asked for reversion because mm. the Japanese state also doesn't really listen to what the Okinawan demands, and it's still the case today.、Mm-hmm. What What's the Japanese position on U.S. military bases still being on Okinawa? Yeah,、uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> It's a it's a complicated question. So the U.S. Japan Mutual Security Agreement, which has been re-signed multiple times, essentially states that the United States can choose to occupy and develop bases on Japanese territories. The U.S. military also has bases on Japan proper, so、mm-hmm. not Okinawa, but in actual Japan. Seventy percent of the U.S. military presence in Japan is in Okinawa, which takes up. I think it's like 0.6 percent of Japan's territorial landmass, and so it's because of this international security agreement that the U.S. gets the final say in whether its military bases are in Japan or not. But for Japan, it's also become a kind of politically convenient way of maintaining its own hegemony and power in the Pacific. So their constitution after World War II forbids Japan from creating an army for purposes of going to war、uh, because of what happened with World War II、mm-hmm. and this imperial takeover that they attempted. With the military bases, they can say that those are there for defense, and then also Japan develops the JSDF, the Japanese Self Defense Forces, as another kind of defensive military、mm-hmm. that is really just a military, but at least in name, is supposedly there only for defense purposes, and that's the only thing the constitution allows for. And so, what we have going on in Okinawa is actually complicated because. Not only are the U.S. military bases there with the agreement of Japan, and the government of Japan actually pays for the bases,、mm. and they're also paying for the relocation of five thousand. No, I think it's eight thousand troops from Okinawa to Guam. They're paying for that building of new facilities, but then you also have the JSDF creating their own facilities on other islands outside of Okinawa Island, like Miyakojima, for example, and so. For Okinawans, they're really subjugated to both interests, and in fact, different governors of Okinawa have at multiple times tried to stop this militarization, and they've tried to stop the military U.S. military bases. And Japan just passed a motion in its Supreme Court a few weeks ago saying that Okinawa now. Cannot stop the military bases and doesn't have the right to do so, and so it's become this issue of: is this even a democratic process? If、mm-hmm. Okinawans are voting to get the military bases out, the governor is trying to stop it, and now they're being told by the high courts in Japan that they don't really get the last decision, anyways.、Mm. Yeah,、um, 
indeed a complicated question. <laughs> but just looking at time, to move back to the field of AAPI, would it make sense from what I'm hearing? Maybe comparing Okinawa and Marshall Islands, you know, they're both in different ways, but both subjugated to Japanese rule. What would happen if we just looked at Okinawa through a Pacific Islander lens? But also, if we apply the term AAPI onto it, like what generative tensions do you think come out? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, amongst Okinawans, there's often more comparisons and connections, including solidarities between activist movements that are happening between Okinawa and Guam and Hawaii. So mm. individuals from these places have come together because they recognize that they're sharing specific struggles against militarism, against imperialism, and settler colonialism on the U.S. side, as well as in Okinawa's case on the Japanese side. At the same time, I'm hesitant to make the move of claiming Okinawa is a Pacific island because mm -hmm. I feel like there can be a risk to that in terms of crowding out the real needs and the real struggles that Pacific islanders are contending with. Okinawan laborers have actually been used in the Marshall Islands by the Japanese colonial powers as laborers to work um, plantation farms and that kind of thing. And so Okinawans in that case were brought to these islands as settlers and laborers. And so I think it's important to recognize that these are different histories. Even if it might be politically advantageous to think about them together, I think that would also risk, again, homogenizing that history and erasing the fact that there were different hierarchies within these colonial structures. In terms of AAPI, though, I feel like nowadays that's used more as a political signifier of group identities. So it's not really relevant to Okinawa in a way because Okinawans don't consider themselves Americans. Right. So Asian American doesn't really make sense for them. But within Asian American studies, maybe, and Pacific studies, I think it can still be generative to think about how these two fields might, in fact, converge and give us insights about the workings of militarism and settler colonialism on Okinawa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's what we wanted to get at, I think, you and I, when we were discussing this episode, that with the Marshall Islands and with the poem Hooked, we wanted to talk about how important it is to separate Asian from Pacific Islander, but then in cases like Okinawa, they really converge. Yeah. So let's say there's a student listening to this episode who may be a bit skeptical about the idea of an AAPI studies program. Hopefully, we've shown you a little bit about what is specific and unique in this field and why even though it is problematic and difficult it is still important to look at Asian Americans, Asians, and Pacific Islanders in a comparative framework. So now that we've gone through this first hurdle, Professor Saito, what are some hopes and dreams and things you envision for AAPI studies at Amherst or in general in universities? Yeah, that's a wonderful question, um, and thank you for inviting me to think about that. As much as I've been talking about maybe some of the problematics of lumping these two groups together, I still hope that in developing an Asian American Pacific Islander program at Amherst, we don't 
take this as a reason to then completely ignore or marginalize again Pacific Islander studies, mm -hmm. um, literature, as well as political concerns. In fact, I hope that the term can itself be an impetus or a call for us to really think about these two groups together and to really amplify Pacific Islander liter well for me <laughs> literary studies um, but also cultures and histories so instead of saying oh, okay we can you know just like ignore the Pacific Islander part or Native Hawaiian aspect of it I hope this is just a reminder of why we need to commit to thinking about all of these issues uh, in connection with each other mm -hmm. uh, let's give it a second <laughs> the lawnmower is gone okay <laughs> saying that oh you know I hope we can think about these issues together I also am really excited about the development of AAPI studies at Amherst because as Pavan Dingro who's been really instrumental in actually creating this program and making sure that it happens and bringing scholars together um, as he's pointed out, there's actually nothing like this at liberal arts colleges. So Amherst mm. would be the first liberal arts college to offer an Asian American and Pacific Islander studies program. So I feel like this is a really important moment in which we can really shape the field mm -hmm. and shape how students are engaging with these different fields and thinking about the issues. Yeah. And then last question to close this out. You mentioned that AAPI really came about on the census. And I just don't know this because I've never taken an American census, but is it still AAPI on the census? or Now it's become Asian and then a separate category for Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander. I see. I see. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Professor Saito, for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it'll be exciting to see where this goes in the future. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Priscilla. Well, there you have it, my wonderful conversation with Professor Saito with only a few brief interruptions. I hope you learned something from that. I, again, learned so much about things I thought I knew. Before you go, remember that every episode comes with a Google Doc in the episode notes that has links and citations to readings, articles, anything else that we mentioned in this episode. The poem Hooked and the blog post accompanying it by Kathy Jetnell Kitchener is in the show notes, and I highly recommend you go check it out and read it again yourself, as well as to read her website and her blog post explaining her own experience with how American processed foods have changed and completely affected the Marshall Islands. With that said, I hope you have a wonderful week, that you're settling in well into the semester, and I will see you again in three weeks time ish goodbye